I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to Year Two of the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Taylor Sparks. It's hard to believe that we're already in our second year, and there's a lot of exciting things coming up. Absolutely. We've got um, some new team members. We'll be introducing Jared Duffy in some of our social media posts, but he's going to help us improve the quality uh, of our recording and editing as well as provide a lot more social media presence so we can be more engaged with listeners. That's something I'm really looking forward to. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we have a lot of other exciting announcements to make as the year goes on, but we can't quite get to them yet. So definitely look forward to that. But today, we're going to be talking about an episode that we've both been interested in doing for a little while, and I think you all will enjoy, and that's on the material science side of blacksmithing. Now, I think before we really dive into it, I think let's start with the mythology of blacksmithing and how we've sort of gotten up to this point. So within Greek mythology, you have Hephaestus, and he was this Greek god of blacksmithing and craftsmen, and um, he was mythologically cast off of Mount Olympus, and it's not super clear for the exact reason. It's either because of his deformity that he had or because he tried to protect Hera from Zeus's advances. But he's primarily responsible for crafting most of the tools and the weapons of the gods. So all of Zeus's thunderbolts, for example. Um, And when you look at Greek myths um, surrounding uh, the story of Hephaestus and blacksmithing in general, um, Hephaestus was able to have the special power to produce motion in the things that he created. So he made the golden and silver lions and dogs at the entrance of the palace of Alcinous, and in such a way that they were able to bite the invaders that would come and get them. And so the Greeks maintained in their civilization this animistic idea that statues were in some sense alive. And I think that really plays out in the statues that they produced. If you look at Greek statues and art. They're not static at all. They really are like Mm -hmm. poised in action, a lot of these things that you've seen. Yeah, they're almost able to make stone look soft. Yeah. And so... I think they really carried through this idea that there was this almost mythological idea behind craftsmen and blacksmithing that you're not just making this static object, you're breathing some sort of life into that. So when I think of uh, mythology and blacksmithing, the Greeks do come to mind, but I also think of like the Norse gods, right? Like we've seen like the whole Marvel universe and, you know, Thor and his hammer, that that is what comes to mind. So is there there back history there to that as well? Yeah. Um, Within Norse mythology, there actually isn't as much writing. Uh, or literature on it as there is with the Greeks. Um, But within them, there's a number of dwarves that were responsible for crafting. Uh, The two sort of famous ones were Brocker and Sindri. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. But (laughs) they were coaxed by Loki into creating all these marvelous gifts for the gods. And it ended up being a bet. The story's kind of long. But I think throughout all the sort of mythologies that involve blacksmithing, the central theme is that what they're making is associated with royalty, godhood, and war, in a sense reflecting the nature and sort of importance of their work. It wasn't really at the time very, you know, for common objects as it was for these very grandiose and very important That's really uh, cool. tools. One of my favorite things to do when I'm teaching introduction to material science and engineering to new engineering students 
is to talk about blacksmithing in the context of the science of what's going on behind blacksmithing. So there's some great shows you can find on YouTube. They're made by the History Channel called Man at Arms. And in Man at Arms, they'll typically remake some sort of famous sword or shield or object that was used in movies or literature or something. And it's cool to watch these guys work. And one of the things that I really like about it is they're using uh, techniques that they know work because they've been taught that it works, but they don't necessarily know the science behind why it works. Why do you have to reheat something? Why do you have to quench it in a certain way? Why can you only elongate it a certain amount? All of those things have scientific reasons for why they work. But that's not what the blacksmiths know. They just know from tradition that that's how you do it. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into some of that science behind blacksmithing. But before we do that, we have to introduce this idea of crystal structure and deformation. So in a crystal structure, you have atoms, and they're arranged in a periodic way. We've talked about this before, that there's this repeat unit. Uh, the easiest way to think of it is Lego bricks. If you've ever played with Legos, you know that they're not all the same size. There's different sizes and shapes, which means that you can put them together in different ways. And imagine just stacking things. You could stack things in a hexagonal pattern. You could stack them in a square pattern. All these different crystal structures are, are available, and there's lots of them. Um, but they don't all behave the same way. Some of them are more close-packed, for example, so they're going to have a higher density. Some of them are less close-packed. Some of them are going to have atoms that can slide past one another more easily. We say that these are slip systems, and the more slip systems something has and the lower energy involved in slip, which is when atoms slide past each other, then the more likely it's going to be a ductile metal. If you don't have slip systems and you don't have a way for atoms to slide past one another, then you don't have a high ductility metal. Okay, so how this all relates to blacksmithing, so we have all of these this almost three-dimensional sort of matrix of repeating units that make up our metal. And so now what happens when we bring a hammer to it or we apply some force to it? So now large numbers of these atoms are going to be displaced from their typical locations. And we call these dislocations. Now there's two primary types of dislocations, the edge and the screw dislocation. Now an edge dislocation is a type of line defect in crystal lattices in which the defect occurs either due to the presence of an extra plane of atoms or due to the loss of a half plane of atoms in the middle of the lattice. So you can think about if you imagine your sort of 3D matrix or your Lego bricks, now what happens if we tried to insert another row into that? You know, there's going to be some strain and it's going to deform the overall structure. And this will cause the nearby planes of atoms to that inserted or missing plane of atoms to bend towards the dislocation. And these are the sorts of dislocations that are going to move parallel to the applied force. So if your hammer, it'll, it'll go in the same direction that the force is being applied. Um, but this can be kind of hard to visualize. Taylor, I think you had a good analogy for yeah, it. Yeah, so for this one, think of like if you've eaten corn on the cob. Once you peel back the husk, right, and you're eating the corn, you ever notice that since the corn starts out narrow at the top and gets wider at the bottom, if you look at it, you'll notice that the rows of corn kernels don't line up perfectly. Most of them do, but every once in a while, an extra half row of corn kernel was sort of stuffed in on, on the wide side, if that makes sense. Um, that is an edge dislocation. And if you look at it, at the tip of that dislocation, right where it stops, that extra half row of atoms, the kernels tend to be a little bit smaller because there's lots of them being smashed in a small space, right? And yet underneath it, they tend to be a little bit larger. This is because dislocations create strain, right? They're straining the lattice. Here, here's our first evidence that strain fields must exist in the vicinity of dislocations. And the further away that you get from the dislocation, the less that you see this happening. The lines start to look straight again. The kernels would all basically be the same size again. Mm -hmm. 
and these strain fields will sort of project out in a radial fashion from the center of the dislocation, right? That's right. And it's important to remember that because of the nature of the dislocation, that it's an extra half row of atoms on one side, then that side is under compression, but the other side is under tension. So you have this sort of two-sided uh, strain field centered around the dislocation, one mm -hmm. side compression, one side tension. And that comes into play a little bit later. Um, but the second kind of dislocation or the second most prominent one is a screw dislocation. And so this defect occurs when the sort of the planes of atoms in the crystal structure trace a helical path around the dislocation line. So in this case, your dislocations are moving perpendicular to your applied force. And this, this can also be kind of visualized or difficult to visualize. So Taylor, I think you also had a really good one for this as well. Yeah, think of a parking structure. If you've ever been in a parking garage, you know that if you had you parked your stall, your stall on level one, you could also go all the way around the corkscrew and park in the exact same spot location-wise, but on level two. So you're at the same location, you've just moved up. In this case, we'd say that the dislocation is traveling upwards, right? The, the direction of the dislocation is upward. And the direction of what's called the Burgers vector is also upward. So what is the Burgers vector? If you do a circuit, meaning you start at one point and you do a loop all the way around the dislocation, then if you're counting the number of steps that you take, then what you do is, let's say we take four steps to the left, four steps down, four steps to the right, four steps up. If we don't end up exactly where we started, that means that there is a dislocation inside of our burger circuit, right? So then the one extra step that you have to take to get back to where you started that's the burgers vector, right? So if it's an edge dislocation, picture the corn cob again. If you're circling around that extra half row of atoms, you'll notice that the burgers vector, that dislocation direction and burgers vector are perpendicular to one another. The dislocation direction goes in and out of the cob of corn, but the burgers vector is in the plane of the corn cob. And that's different than a screw dislocation. In a screw dislocation, the dislocation runs up and down and that's also your burgers vector, right? You went all the way around the parking structure. You got up a level. To get back to where you started, you have to go down a level. You don't go left or right or front and back. You go up or down, right? So that's a fundamental difference between edge and screw dislocations is in one case, the burgers vector is parallel, and in the other case, it's perpendicular to the dislocation direction. Mm -hmm. And so the presence of dislocations will rearrange the atomic structure through the breaking and forming of atomic bonds. Taylor mentioned that there are slip systems that determine how easily planes of atoms are able to slide past one another, and this affects the ductility of your material. But this also affects the way that dislocations can move through your lattice structure. Uh, their ability for them to move will determine how ductile your material is. So yeah. if a material has a lot of slip planes and it's easy for uh, dislocations to move through them, it's going to be easy to bend that material. However, if it's difficult for dislocations to move, it, it's going to be a lot harder. It's going to be more brittle. Yeah, take uh, some of the basic material structure classes like BCC, FCC, and HCP. FCC has the most slip systems. It has 12 different ways that it can slide. It has 12 active slip systems. But body-centered cubic has fewer. I think it has eight, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so there's fewer ways that these things can slide past another, so it's less ductile. So materials like molybdenum and tungsten, which are body-centered cubic, they're going to tend to be much more brittle than FCC metals like gold or aluminum or copper. Um, you probably, if you've had any experience with blacksmithing or just metals in general, you know those things are much softer and more ductile than their BCC counterparts. And then HCP, 
hexagonal close packed, it only has its slip system is along the basal plane, so the bottom of the hexagonal cubic uh, unit cell. So it has even fewer. Those tend to be very brittle. So materials like magnesium are much more brittle. Uh, they don't have active slip systems. Now, we're, we're skipping something here because dislocation motion, when these extra half row of atoms move in either an edge or a screw dislocation, that's one way of achieving deformation. The other way of achieving deformation is twinning. And twinning is when you have a grain boundary, which we've talked about before in the podcast. Grain boundaries, again, are where different regions of different crystallographic orientations come together, right? So there's a mismatch. The easiest way to think of this is imagine that Andrew started building a brick wall <laughs> on one end of the room, and I start building a brick wall on the other end of the room, but I don't look at what he's doing when I start. And ours are off. They don't have the exact same angle, right? So mine is tilted at maybe 15 degrees, and his is at zero degrees. And next thing you know, when we meet to each other, there's a mismatch. That's a grain boundary, right? So a twinning process, twinning is a special type of grain boundary where there's mirror symmetry preserved across the grain boundary, if that makes sense. You could draw a line along the grain boundary, and then on either side of that line, it would look like a mirror. Each atom would be lined up. That would be a twin. So if you have an untwinned material, you have a regular brick wall, you could deform it in such a way that now you preserve a mirror symmetry along some direction. So you can move lots of atoms. They all have to cooperatively move together. That's different than, a screw to, than an edge or a screw dislocation where that individual half row moves at a time. Here, it's lots of atoms moving at the same time. And what's cool is that when you do this, you can actually hear it. I think I'll play a little bit of a video. We're going to get some audio of this. But if you take tin and at low temperatures, if you bend tin, you can hear it. It sort of sounds like like um, snap, crackle, pop, like that cereal. Like uh, mm -hmm. what is that? Um, Rice Krispies in milk. Yep. What you're hearing is many, many atoms all moving at the same time together, which is pretty amazing. On the other hand, if you heat that material up, twinning is no longer the dominant deformation mechanism. And when you bend it, you don't hear anything. Just like you don't hear anything when you twist a paperclip because it's not twinning. So that's pretty cool. Twinning is lots of atoms moving together. That creates an acoustic wave, right, as all those atoms move collectively. And that acoustic wave you can actually hear. So when we apply a force or this dislocation occurs, you know, most of the energy just gets dissipated as heat, but approximately 5% of it remains in the lattice. And Taylor talked about a little bit the, you know, the presence of a strain field and how there's an area of compression and an area of tension. And that's where this remaining energy sits. And so these strain fields, you can almost imagine them being polar in a sense that there's almost a, you know, a compressive side and a tension side. And so if you have a number of dislocations that are capable of movement through your material, they will tend to be attracted or repelled to one another depending on the, you know, which side is going to interact. So your tension and compression regions are going to want to come together, but tension and tension regions are going to want to repel each other. And so the effect that you'll start to see is that if dislocations are able to move and they have these strain fields, they'll tend to line up or repel one another in such a way that there's some degree of order or movement. Additionally, you know, Actually, what, what are the conditions that would cause them to annihilate one another? So think about it. You've got an extra half row of atoms uh, on your left. If you're looking at the crystal, there's an extra half row of atoms coming in from the top on the left. And then on the right-hand side, you've got an extra half row of atoms coming from the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. If those things get close to one another, think what's happening. On the left top part, it's under compression because there's that extra half row of atoms. So it's all those atoms are feeling really squeezed. But on the right top side, 
that's not where the extra half row of atoms is. That's on the bottom, right? So those are going to be under tension. They're feeling pulled apart. So that tensile region and the compression region are going to be pulled to one another because there's a net reduction in energy, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's less strained if they get close to one another. And the more and more close they get to one another, that extra half row atoms on the top gets closer and closer to the extra half row of atoms on the bottom until next thing you know, they just line up and you have a perfect lattice. It's healed again. Mm -hmm. So they, the overall, it, as long as they're lined up with one another, they will be attracted Okay, so those if they're are, opposite signs. Mm -hmm. So those are the conditions by which the dislocation can be annihilated and you can return. But how often does that happen? So in order for that to happen, you have to have, first off, they have to be lined up, right? And that's not always the case. And then you have to have atomic motion, right? Because it does require atoms to break bonds and form new bonds, right? That's, that's how these extra half, extra half of atoms move is by the breaking and making of new bonds. Mm -hmm. So this is a diffusion process. So for this to happen, you typically need higher temperatures. In fact, this leads to some important concepts in blacksmithing, which we're going to get to in a minute, which is called recovery recrystallization. But before we get to that, we need to discuss a little bit of what happens to grains as you deform them. Um, now, Taylor talked a little bit about grains and how they're essentially just think, think about it as in like a wall. So you have different orientations of these repeating units that are in your material. Okay, so what happens at the boundary between these? There are, you know, there are slip systems and slip planes within your repeating units. But what happens once it comes into contact with a, you know, another repeating unit grouping called a grain um, where it's oriented differently? There isn't any congruency between the slip planes. So that makes it now difficult for that dislocation to move and it becomes, you know, stopped essentially there's a lot of random disorder within the grain boundary and then on the other side of it it's not going to line up perfectly so it's difficult for the dislocations to move at these boundaries and so in a polycrystalline material which means that you're going to have all these different grains and different orientations they're a little bit more difficult to deform because of this difference and this lack of symmetry between the between the grains. And so before deformation, typically your grains are going to be equiaxed and have approximately the same dimension in all directions. Um, and for this particular deformation, you know, if we are, you know, we're hammering it, the grains are going to become elongated perpendicular to the force that's being applied. So think of making aluminum foil. When they make aluminum foil, first off, there's some awesome videos you can watch on YouTube about this, but they start out with a big block of aluminum. Mm -hmm. And if that was as cast, then you might expect it to have the grains that you just described, where they're sort of round in every direction. But the way that they get it into a very thin foil is they roll it, right? They send it through right. a roller. So the roller is applying essentially a compressive force on it, and it's rolling back and forth. They pass it through, and then they bring the rollers a little bit closer together. They pass it through again. They bring them a little bit closer together. So each time, it's just being rolled and rolled and rolled. So they're continuously causing these these grains to deform and become flatter and flatter and flatter. And you can see it in the microstructure. It goes from being right. nice equiax grains to, and it looks like layers of paper basically by the end of this thing, which is pretty cool that uh, you can see the, the effect of all these dislocations moving over time along certain slip systems and not others. Totally changes the microstructure. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. So a two-dimensional image would just show these equiax grains becoming more flatter, essentially, as you're pointing out. In this case, you know, the more that you actually flatten these grains, the material will actually become stronger because it's because it's now more difficult for dislocations to move because, you know, dislocations rely on there being these congruency between the slip planes. And the more dislocations that you introduce into the material, you know, it becomes harder for other dislocations to move. Yeah, I, I often like to have people imagine they're looking at a brick wall and like as hard as it would be to grab a chunk of that wall and slide it, 
I mean, the mortar's pretty well strong, but imagine there's no mortar between the bricks. You could maybe make the bricks slide some directions easily if it's stacked up nicely, but that's if you're pushing it nice and horizontally, right? Imagine you tried to push it straight up. Well, now the bricks are like in the way of one another, so they can't slide past one another easily. That's kind of what's happening with this situation. Instead of a dislocation being able to go easily from one grain to the other because they're nice and lined up, there's lots of these grain boundaries where it might have, going to have to change its direction. Uh, I saw a video that described it well. It basically said, like, imagine you could push a train on its tracks easily if you're pushing it directly along the tracks. But if you're pushing at some angle to the track, that's much harder, right? Because there's a shear and a normal component to that force. And what you really want is the shear component, right? We get the same problem happening as you pile up lots and lots of grain boundaries. You are resisting deformation motion. And that's one of the core concepts of material science. If you make it harder for dislocations to move, you made a harder, stronger material that is less ductile. This is actually the root of what's known as the Hall-Petch relationship. Hall-Petch basically said, okay, as you make grain size smaller, right, then you're going to have more grain boundaries on average, and therefore it should become harder. And that's what we see, that it goes by the grain size to the negative one half. And this is both hardness and yield strength typically obey the Hall-Petch relationship, which is a great way to strengthen a material. So if you've got the exact same material, you can modify its microstructure and make it harder or softer, right? You can make it more or less ductile by just changing the grain size with a heat treatment. Mm -hmm. And another way to increase or prevent dislocation motion is the addition of dopants or impurities such as carbon and steel. Yeah, so that's a great one. Uh, I think an even easier way to think of this is think of sterling silver. Sterling silver is not 100% silver. It's actually, I think it's with 8% by either weight or mole percent copper. But if you add 8% copper, you know, you've added a less valuable metal to a more valuable metal. So why is this better in some ways? Why it's better is because copper is actually a little bit smaller than silver. Um, maybe like 20% smaller in size. And so now you have an individual point defect, we call it, where the copper is at a single spot and it's smaller. Think of the strain field that that will create, right? Around that defect, it's going to put everything in compression around it, right? Because all those atoms, they'd like to be a little bit more closely packed, but the copper's too small. So you have a compressive region completely surrounding that, so if you have a nearby dislocation, which remember has both a compressive and a tensile side to it, what's going to happen? The strain field of the dislocation is going to interact with the strain field of the impurity, and they're going to draw close to one another such that the copper defect mm -hmm. will end up at the very tip of that extra half row of atoms. Why? Because at that extra half row of atoms, that's where it's at its most compressed, where the atoms are really being squeezed. So why not put a small atom there, right? If you have an impurity copper atom sitting there, it's going to relieve the overall strain a little bit. Now, dislocations tend to move much more easily than atoms do. Atoms move more slowly. So what you've essentially done is you've pinned that dislocation. You've pinned it in place. The copper atom can technically move, but it's going to move much slower than the dislocation would be able to move otherwise. So what you've done is you've slowed down that dislocation motion. And that, from our basic rule, it means that you've made this material harder and stronger. Mm -hmm. Now, if you did the other way, let's imagine you put in something bigger than silver. If you put in a bigger atom than silver, gold, for example, it's not going to go on the top side of your dislocation with the extra half row. It's going to go on the bottom side, right? It, since it's bigger, it's going to want to sit in the tensile region of your dislocation to have an overall reduction in the strain. But it's, it's the same thing. In either case, it pins it. And so impurities are really good at strengthening your material because they lock up your dislocation.
Okay, so now we have kind of an interesting challenge. The more that you hammer away to material, the more dislocations that you're introducing. And while some of them are going to annihilate one another, there's just so many and there's so many different orientations of the, the crystal structure based on grains that it's going to become harder and harder for these dislocations to move and they're going to start getting stuck on one another. Imagine trying to get through a subway station during rush hour. There's so many people that you're not able to move through it very quickly. And so the material is getting harder and harder to deform as a result because dislocation motion is uh, is hindered. And yeah. so I don't know if anybody's actually done that, but if anybody has blacksmith, then you know this to be the case. The first couple hammer strokes, when you take it out of the flame, you can deform it really easily. That's for a couple reasons. First off, it's hottest when it comes out of the flame, right? So the higher the temperature, the more thermal motion, mm -hmm. but also because it has fewer dislocations. And so each time that you hammer strike it, you're adding lots of dislocations. And the more dislocations, the harder it is to move the ones that you want to create. So it just gets harder and harder and more likely to fracture with each hammer strike. Mm -hmm. And so in order to get around this problem, um, there's sort of three phenomenon that stack on top of one another, and that's recovery, recrystallization, and grain growth. And so the first step is recovery. And so when there's a bunch of dislocations introduced into the crystal lattice, um, we need a way of sort of relieving these. And so the metals are heated and energy is added to the system. And when you add energy to the system, you're allowing dislocations to be able to move. They have enough energy to overcome um, any, any sort of barriers to motion there. And so what that allows to happen is dislocations to sort of dissipate or annihilate in such a way that they're no longer within the material. But the problem is that your grains are still deformed. They're still flattened um, from the hammer strokes. Following recovery, um, remember the grains are still subject to a lot of strain. So then we move to the second phase and that's recrystallization. And this is the process by which new strain-free grains are gonna be formed and they're gonna replace those existing cold worked grains, the flattened ones. And so, these grains, these new grains that will form during the recrystallization phase are going to resemble grains that were present in the pre-worked material. So they're going to be nice and equiaxed and easy to deform, but not hinder um, dislocation motion. So with recovery and recrystallization, it's sort of like buying a home. You mm -hmm. could buy lots of homes out on the market, right? You could buy one that is really crappy. It's going to take a lot of work to get it in nice shape. And at some point, it's so damaged that it's cheaper just to scrap it right? is kind of the idea. Mm -hmm. You just say like, it would be easier for me to just tear this thing to the ground and rebuild it anew. That's kind of the difference between recovery and recrystallization. Recovery is remodeling a home. It's getting rid of your dislocations one by one, giving them enough thermal energy that they can find one another with an opposite sign, recombine, annihilate, and you have a perfect lattice. That can happen. But if it's so damaged, if there's so much strain energy stored into it from so many dislocations, at some point, it becomes less expensive energetically to build a new house, basically, to build an, a new strain-free lattice by nucleating it from the old one. And that's what's cool is you can actually see this happen. It starts out as little tiny grains that are strain-free, and those grow at the expense of the heavily deformed grains until they're completely uh, changed. What's cool about this to me as a blacksmith is as you deform your, sh your object into some shape, whatever you're making, you know, it took a lot of hammer blows and a lot of treatment, and by the end of it, it is so damaged. The crystal structure is so filled with impurities and dislocations and problems that it might be way, way brittle and not have the toughness that you need. What's cool is that you can then heat treat this thing, and in the exact shape that you got it in, all of a sudden you can end up with a very ductile, tough material again, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. 
all the properties that it had in the pre-worked state before you start hammering will return through the process of recrystallization. Now, the other thing that will happen as you heat treat things is you'll get grain growth. Now, Andrew, why do grains grow? If you've got a bunch of really small grains and you put it in a furnace, they will grow and get larger. Why is that? Um, you know, with pretty much most processes that happen in, in nature, it's about reducing energy. With all processes. Energy drives everything. Everything. And so in this sense, you know, if you think about the boundaries that are going to exist between grains, there's some sort of area associated with that. And so the more gr small grains you have, the larger area you have between them. And surfaces cost energy, this, this area, this surface between each grain. And so by facilitating grain growth, they're able to reduce the amount of total area relative to the volume, which also reduces the energy and makes it more stable. Yeah, that's and it. a way to sort of think about surface energy, I think it can be kind of difficult to visualize, is just sort of imagine that you're standing in a room and you're waving your arms, right? It takes a certain amount of energy to do that. But now let's say you link up with someone, and now you only have to wave one of your arms, and they only have to wave one of theirs. Now imagine you keep linking up with more and more people. Now only you know one out of or two out of ten people have to wave their arms. That's a lot less energy, and that's sort of how we can imagine the energy uh, cost of a surface. So yeah. the larger your surface, the less energy it costs. Yeah, if you imagine like atoms are social, like they want to be arranged in a certain way. They want to have a certain number of neighbors, and if you have a surface then they could have had a neighbor on that surface, but they don't, and they're just unhappy about that, right? That, that's costing them energy. In any case, if you grow your grains, you get rid of these surfaces, and so you go down in energy. So you see what's called coarsening or grain growth, and you, it can be pretty dramatic. You can grow really big grains if you do it really slowly at high temperatures. You can see really big grains grow. Some of them are even, you can see them with your naked eye. So, for example, if you ever looked at a light post and you noticed that it has that sort of spangled pattern on it, um, that's from hot dipping the steel in zinc. And that outer layer happens in such a way that it grows really large grains of the, uh, the zinc steel. I think it's a mixture of the two. In any case, you can see big grains on, on those. But most of the time, grains are smaller than what you can see with your eye for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're heating it up to facilitate this whole uh, recovery, recrystallization, and grain growth process, we're not heating it too high. We're, not, we're only heating it to the point where there can be atomic or dislocation diffusion or movement throughout the system. This is typically between a third and a half of the absolute melting temperature of the material. So we don't want to melt it right down. We want to maintain the shape that we deformed it in, but we just want to give it enough energy that movement and diffusion can occur within it. And another way to sort of think about this whole process is almost just like a reset button for the steel, right? You've deformed it, it's very brittle, but by going through this process, you can sort of reset it and then begin hammering it again and continue shaping it. Which is so cool that we have that capability. Now, if you've ever watched a blacksmith work, one of the most exciting things about it is when they take the sword or whatever it is out of the hot furnace and it's glowing orange or red or even white, depending on how, the, how hot they got it. They take it and they dunk it right into either a vat of oil and flames jump up or water and it's hissing and bubbling. This is called quenching. Now, what on earth is going on with quenching? To answer that question, we have to introduce the idea of phases. Uh, in blacksmithing, your material can exist in different phases. If it's pure, pure iron, 100% iron, then at room temperature, it's the BCC iron, and at high temperatures, it's going to be FCC iron. So if it was in the FCC phase in the furnace, and then you hurried and quenched it to BCC, it would go from FCC to BCC. 
But what happens if you quench it so fast that the atoms don't have time and enough thermal energy to quickly enough arrange themselves in that BCC structure, right? What can happen is that it will instead form martensite, a martensitic transformation. A martensitic transformation is one where there's a collective movement of atoms, right? It's a, they call it a diffusionless transformation, phase transformation, because all the atoms just shift a little bit. How it works is imagine you had an FCC lattice. FCC means the atoms are at the corners of the cube and on the faces. Now imagine you took that cube and you just stretched it vertically just a little bit, right? That is the martensitic transformation. It goes from being cubic, and since you stretched it in one direction, it actually becomes tetragonal. It becomes body-centered tetragonal, okay? So that is the martensitic phase. Technically, it's just going from FCC and stretching it in one direction until you get this body-centered tetragonal. Now, what this means for a blacksmith is that you went from the most ductile metal, FCC, that we have to a very non-ductile crystal structure, which is body-centered tetragonal. So it went from being very ductile to very brittle. And so you go from something that is easily worked to something that is super brittle. You can't work it at all. It becomes extremely hard. Now, unfortunately, when you do this, the volume change is such that it actually produces cracks in your material. So you would never quench something extremely rapidly, turn it completely martensite, and want to use it. Well, not never, but for most things you wouldn't because at the um, benefit of being very hard and strong, you lose all your toughness. Right? So there's a difference here between toughness and hardness. How do you describe the difference there, Andrew? Right. So hardness would be your resistance to permanent deformation. So if you're trying to bend something, it's going to be very difficult to bend. Um, but your toughness is going to be the ability to withstand that plastic deformation that does occur. So what happens when you do bend it? Is it going to be able to you know, bend and maintain its integrity? Or as soon as you bend it a little bit, it's going to shatter or, or break? So you can think about like a ceramic bowl versus a paper clip <laughs> or a ceramic plate. You know, trying to bend a ceramic plate is pretty difficult. And then but as soon as you do bend it, it it's just going to break in half. Whereas a paper clip, it's pretty easy to bend it, but you know, to, to bend it, and to, but it'll maintain, it'll stay in one piece. And so a, you know, a plate has a lot, is a lot harder, but it, uh, a paper clip's a lot tougher. Yeah. Think of the total energy that goes into a material deforming up until fracture. Um, the ceramic, you're right, it's going to absorb energy at a high rate until it fractures, but it doesn't, it doesn't deform basically at mm -hmm. all. So the total energy absorbed is not very big, right? Um, now, that's just the martensitic transformation. There are other important phase transformations in blacksmithing. For example, if you heat a steel up above the austenitic, um, into the austenitic region where it's an, we call austenite, the FCC phase, right? So this is 727 degrees Celsius, right? So it's glowing orange, basically, is right around that, that point. If you heat it up there, it's going to be a single phase. And when you cool it down, if you, we already said if you cool it down really quickly, it converts to martensite. If you cool it down more slowly, you're going to get either perlite, bainite, or spheroidite. So what on earth are these? What you have happening is it goes from a single phase where your carbon and your iron are mixed together and they're mixed together as an alloy. It's just dissolved. The, the carbon is dissolved in your iron in the solid state. But if you cool it down in those regions, it thermodynamically wants to phase separate into almost pure iron. It's basically pure iron with just a very small amount of carbon. But the other phase is where all your carbon goes to. It segregates and forms an iron carbide phase, Fe3C. So three irons, one carbon, and we call this cementite, right? Cementite because it's brittle like a cement, right? It's, it's brittle. It's a hard ceramic, basically. So now it goes from being a metal with dissolved carbon into it 
to now being a pure metal and a ceramic. And imagine those two different phases, how you disperse them in one another is going to really ch radically change your properties. Because this is a eutectoid reaction, that means it goes from one solid to two different solids at a single temperature, this reaction happens fast. Because it happens fast, we get the lamellar structure. The lamellar structures, when there's layers of these different materials that stack up on one another, they form layers because they just don't have enough time to diffuse long distances to separate into big clumps. What do blacksmiths do with this? They have lots of different quenching mediums. You might quench from one furnace right into another. That would be one option. But more commonly, you'll see them drop it into oil or water or some other medium. And these things have different heat capacities, different heat transfer coefficients. And so they're essentially going to pull heat out of your material at faster or slower rates. And therefore, they're going to change the microstructure material depending on how you quench it. Mm -hmm. And typically, they'll try to find some sort of balance between hardness and toughness. So certain parts of the blade you want harder than others. So the blade portion you probably want very hard. You don't want that to be deforming a whole ton when you're trying to cut something. But the actual you know main structure of the blade, you probably want it tougher because you don't want it to be brittle or you know depending on what it's being used for. So you want it to be able to cut things, but you want it to also be able to withstand some sort of impact. Yeah, this is actually one of the benefits. Imagine you've got something, it's in the austenite phase, so it's heated up. It's mm -hmm. all single phase dissolved carbon and iron. You quench it, and when you first touch it into, say, water, that is going to really aggressively pull the heat away uh, from the metal. So you might be most likely to get martensitic at the surface. And then in the bulk, the heat has to, has to diffuse, right, thermally diffuse through your material, and that's going to depend on your thermal conductivity of your material. Mm -hmm. If it's not great, then you might not get martensite all the way through. You might get martensite only at the surface, but you might get perlite or bainite in the middle. And that might be exactly what you want because perlite and bainite has the toughness of having that metal phase in it, right? The, the pure iron essentially, mm -hmm. right? But the martensite on the surface is going to be able to be very hard to keep an edge. That's sort of ideal for a sword is having that martensitic area on the surface, but having a bulk that is tough like perlite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you recall back to our steel episode, the Japanese samurai did something very similar in the making of their swords where the, the outer surface was very hard, but the inner surface was tough so that yeah. it could withstand impacts. And there's other things you can do. Obviously, there's case hardening where you purposely introduce more carbon to the surface, right? If you were to put this in a source of carbon, that carbon can diffuse into the surface. We know the more carbon there is, the more of those interstitial sites they're going to fill. That makes it harder for slip to occur, so you strengthened it because you've made it harder for dislocations to move. So there's lots of things you can do to also um, create a functionally graded material, but these are some of the ideas. Okay, we're going to jump to a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to sit down with Alexander Wickstrom from the University of Utah Materials Advantage student chapter. He participated in the TMS bladesmithing competition where he and his team created a sword and competed and did very well. And so we're going to learn from him about his process, how he uses his education to you know, create swords and what blacksmithing is like from an actual blacksmith. This month's episode is sponsored by MapMatch. MapMatch is a company that's passionate about material science and whose goal is to help connect materials engineers and materials providers and suppliers. For example, a blacksmith is making a bladed tool and will want something that is hard enough to keep a good edge while being tough enough to avoid fracture. Many blacksmiths suggest martensitic steels for these applications. On MapMatch.com, we can search for martensitic steels and we see over 400 different steels available. Or you could search by application by going to metallurgy and then selecting iron and steel products. And under spring steels, you will see many steels ideally suited for blacksmithing blade projects. 
Each alloy lists the composition so you can select a high versus low carbon content steel depending on what you're looking for, or a stainless steel if you want to avoid corrosion. The whole process is super quick and intuitive, which is probably why their platform is used by over a million engineers each year. Best of all, searching for that perfect material is completely free. Head over to matmatch.com and check out how useful it might be in your next engineering project. All right, we're back from the break and we're sitting down with Alexander Wickstrom. We talked a little bit about him before the break, but now he's here to tell us all about blacksmithing and his experience with making a sword for the TMS competition. So Alex, do you wanna just introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about what you do? Sure, I'm Alexander Wickstrom. I'm here a student in the metallurgy program. Been here for three years, I'm a junior. Um, I've been blacksmithing, welding, kind of doing metalworking for almost about 10 years now. I really got into it uh, beginning of high school and have just, just really taken off and got all sorts of equipment now. I have a really nice shop and just really enjoying it. And it's really become uh, a way for me to apply and, and, and learn a lot of other things that I wouldn't have normally got through the classes. And mm. it, makes, it makes seeing what's going on a lot easier. I feel like a lot of, a lot of students nowadays, since they don't get a lot of hands-on experience, it, they don't have that physical understanding of what's happening. Mm -hmm. But when you get out and you get to play with stuff, it, it becomes a little bit more real. And then you have kind of two sets uh, of understandings to kind of compare to each other and get a better overall understanding of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. This last past semester, I took physical metallurgy mm -hmm. and um, corrosion. And both of them, my, my previous experiences made, I, I think I got, I just got so much more out of the classes. Um, so much of the, the things I did in the shop, heat treating especially, uh, and various other procedures, especially with welding that I didn't fully understand. I had, an, had a basic understanding of why certain things were done mm -hmm. and certain precautions were taken, but I didn't fully understand them. And then once I took these classes and, and really got the, the science behind it, it all made sense. And I was really lucky because I had uh, an avenue that a lot of other students didn't have to uh, under understand that information and, ha and have, a, have something to compare it to. A lot of times when you're learning about relatively abstract ideas mm -hmm. and you don't have any frame of reference, you, you really don't know what's going on. You don't know how it applies. But when you, when you, start, when you start doing heat treating, when you start doing foraging, when you interact with things like especially corrosion, um, then you start to pick it out. What you've learned, you start to see. And what, what you've seen, all of a sudden, you learn, you're learning it, and it makes sense. Now right. it makes sense. And then going forward, I've just in the last few months taken a lot of precautions and changed the, the way I do things, uh, in even some cases somewhat drastically, because of, of what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And it now makes sense. That's one of the biggest things is that before I did things because that's what the book said. Um, now I do it because I understand why, why, that, why that happens. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. And it's cool to see that your education has been helping you improve your practice as well, sort of filling in some of the gaps and allowing you to sort of, you know, have a better understanding and improve your practice and your craft in that sense. Um, so have you used this sort of these sort of techniques to help others as well? Or has it mostly just been sort of individual? Like how how shared is this? You know, I I want to share it more. Mm -hmm. I've had a hard time sharing it just because for, for me, if you don't have that, that frame of reference that I have, it doesn't, a lot of the things I'm talking about, you don't pick up. Mm -hmm. um, 
so getting getting in groups where you, where you of people who either have welding or or, or that more hands-on real physical ex- experience or groups that have that more um, academic experience finding people who who have both is a bit hard at least for me uh, I would like to I would like to find more people that do and I think it's it's ex- extremely valuable to have both you're much more uh, useful as an engineer if you maybe don't understand all of the the science, but you understand a lot more about about how how these procedures and, and whatnot are are implemented and 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 how they how they are affected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big example that I've I've always seen is you look at parts and prints, um, uh, especially blueprints and stuff, and you see that they've designed it or engineered it in a way that makes it either hard to work on or hard to assemble because the engineers themselves don't have a lot of that manufacturing or, or hands-on background. So they can't build something that makes it easy for those who come in after and work on it. Mm-hmm. You see it a lot in cars. I work on motorcycles a lot. And that's a fun thing. When you do see that, they actually did understand it and they, and they, 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 they did things that make it easier for you. But sometimes you look at certain things and you think, why did they do this? There was an easier way to do it. You didn't have to put this bolt here. You didn't have to put this this thing right in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, just just its foresight, you know. Uh, but that foresight generally only comes with experience. It doesn't come with sitting reading a book or sitting in a class right. in a lecture. You just it, you just have to learn it by doing it. I have to imagine that that also helps with retention of the stuff that you learn, because you know if you just read it once in a book or you study it for a test, odds are you're, you might forget it if you don't continue using it. But if it's something you continuously want, you know you're actively thinking about how you can work it into your own practice. I imagine that definitely helps you retain that knowledge a lot more and understand it on a much more fundamental level. Very much so. I think, you know, when you're learning something, if you don't, under, for me personally, and this is just personal. If I can't understand everything, kind of all the, all the ins and outs of something, I won't understand it mm-hmm. at all. But if you have other information to kind of come in with and and uh, have references, uh, it makes it makes a lot more sense, and it sticks. Right? It retains. Mm-hmm. So, you've also taken this competition. You, yes. from my understanding, you went to a TMS bladesmithing competition. Can you tell us about that? Uh, TMS, they, it's the the Metals, Minerals, and Materials Society, I believe. Mm-hmm. And but for the last four or five years now, they've had these these competitions for for student members uh, through Materials Advantage, which is a, a student and professional society put together by TMS, Acer, AIST, and a couple other mm-hmm. organizations for just just professional engineers and and students. And the competition is between Materials Advantage students, and our department did it three years ago now. Before I was here, um, they. I don't think they they didn't place, but um, and then we decided to do it last past year and ended up getting getting started a bit late on it and having a rough start. We were hoping to build, do almost all of them all, all all of it here at the on the shop on on campus, mm-hmm. but it just quickly realized that that wasn't possible. We didn't have the equipment, so we decided to to do almost all of the the production at, at my shop in Ogden and just sped things up. I, I know I know all that equipment. I'm very familiar with it, so. It just uh, made it easier, and we, I just had a lot more equipment as well. Um, they have the way it works for TMS. You get to they just have kind of length and size requirements on, on the blade. Mm-hmm. You could choose kind of whatever you want, um, and the way you're graded is that you have to write a, a, a ten to twelve page paper. You have a five minute video, and then a poster, along with the sword. 
the, the sword is only 40% of that grade. Another 40% is the paper, uh, 10% is the poster, and 10% is the video. And, you know, in my opinion, we had the best sword there by far. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we spent so much time working on the sword, our paper and our gotcha. poster and video ended up not being a- as good. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't, we didn't win, which is what we were hoping to do. But uh, we ended up uh, getting a special special commendation for, I think it was beauty, I believe. So tell tell us about the sword that you made. You know, what what are the, were the dimensions? What were the considerations? What were the sort of design you went for? And what were some of the challenges that you faced? You said that you had to switch shops. Was that primarily equipment? But was there also some materials issues there too? So we didn't really have any materials issues. I mean, besides materials handling, we just mm-hmm. didn't, just here at the shop on campus, we just don't have the equipment to, okay. to properly handle uh, what we're trying to do. Um, and for the competition, we made a, it wasn't an exact historical replica, but we, we, we did a, tried a historical piece of a, it was a 16th century Italian rapier. We, we decided to do it in Damascus steel, and we used a, uh, pretty fun blend I actually learned it uh, learned of it from uh, a black a blacksmith and bladesmith from Arizona that's a really interesting blend instead of for most Damascus steels we generally use uh, a high carbon steel and a high nickel steel mm-hmm. but we we used nic- pure nickel as well so instead of having two metals we used three so we used 01 which is a tool steel oil hardening tool steel which about 1% carbon and the reason we choose O1 as opposed to other other steels that have, have very similar properties is O1 has very high manganese content, has about 1% manganese, 1 to 1.2% manganese. And that manganese, when it's etched, produces a very black finish. Now, to contrast that, we used a steel called 15N20, which is only has about 0.7% carbon, but it has about 2, 2.5% nickel. And that nickel, when etched, stays bright. Mm-hmm. And 15 and 20 is actually a very interesting steel. It's, it was designed by Udeholm in Sweden for use in bandsaw blades in, in big uh, lumber mills. Uh, so it's just, it's super durable. Uh, they, you can buy it in really thin sections. Um, it's really great stuff for all, sort, all sorts of uh, knife making, especially Damascus. And then we mixed that with Monel 200 nickel, which is pretty much a pure nickel, but we used it in, in shim stock. So it was only five thousandths of an inch thick. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the O one we used was five thirty seconds of an inch thick, and the fifteen and twenty I believe was was sixty five thousandths of an inch thick. So when you look at the sword, it, it's pretty dark because of the, because the O one is, is is significantly thicker in, st- to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, so Damascus steel is a is a bit of a misnomer. Um, the name Damascus steel comes from the Crusades when Europeans went to the, the Middle East and first encountered this uh, uh, steel blade swords mostly with this pattern in them, this black mm-hmm. and white kind of wavy pattern. Um, what they encountered was not what we made in this competition and what today is considered Damascus steel. What they encountered was Woot steel. Woot steel is uh, very different. It's a, it's a dendritic steel and okay. it's actually it's uh, very old uh, as far as steels are concerned. It was the first steel to be uh, melted, actually. Most, most iron and steel up until the Industrial Revolution, when it was produced, it wasn't actually melted. The ore was only reduced in a bloomery furnace 
and then and then consolidated. It would produce it would the ore would be reduced and it would kind of melt down into this sponge. And you'd take that sponge and you'd hammer it and, and consolidate it into a single piece. And you'd take that piece and you'd forge it out into a bar and then you'd cut it up and unfold it and, and keep doing that. And that would uh, uh, remove impurities that extended time at, a, at elevated temperature and uh, lots of hot work forced out all the slag and just homogenized uh, the piece. Woot steel, on the other hand, comes from India, actually, and is thought to even originate in Sri Lanka. Uh, and it was it was a different process where they would take already already made iron, which would have been a bloomery iron, mm-hmm. and they would put it in a crucible and then in a very specially designed furnace, which they were able to in southern India and in Sri Lanka harness the power of the typhoons to uh, provide a constant blast of air. Which is the only only place they'd, they'd ever really done this before. You'd have to actually ma- manually fire the, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the the furnace by pumping bellows. Uh, whereas with with harnessing the typhoons, you can it would be a lot more consistent. You could produce a lot higher pressure, more volume of air, and it would burn hotter. So they would actually be able to melt the steel, and melting the steel is is far better than the, than producing it through a, through a, a boom a bloomery furnace because. All those, all those impurities get the chance to float off. And what creates woot steel, as opposed to other cast steels, is that the ore they were using had very small amounts of vanadium. And that vanadium, during cooling, would segregate out of the dendrites. It, you have to, when making woots, you have to cool it very slowly. You can't heat it, melt it, and then cool it quickly. It has to be cooled very slowly so that the, the vanadium has time to segregate out of the dendrites into the surrounding liquid material as it cools along the, the cooling front, mm-hmm. and it forms a vanadium carbide precipitate, and that vanadium carbide is black. And gotcha. then when it's etched, you see, you see the pattern. So that's Wootsia, that's where the name comes from. What we're making today, and what most people call Damascus steel today, is what's called pattern-welded steel. And that's been around since as long as Wootsia, as long as steel's been around, mm-hmm. because it, it, it comes out of the process of refining the steel. Nowadays, we, we select completely different, different steels, steels with, with high manganese and then high nickel content to produce a, a, a really bright contrast. A thousand, two thousand years ago, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to actually refine the steel, but in doing so, there, there would be some, some pattern evident af- mm-hmm. after etching, but it wouldn't be bright. So Woot's steel kind of fell out of, out of use uh, Generally, about in the, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, when when steel, actual cast steel, uh, became commercially available and, and readily available due to the Bessemer process and then open hearth process before that, but uh, it was kind of lost and then rediscovered with under John D. Verhoeven at University of Iowa and then another uh, bladesmith by the name of Al Pendrave, and they spent, I believe, almost twenty years uh, figuring out how Woots was actually made. Um, and now there are some people who, who produce woots mm-hmm. uh, uh, in blades and stuff, but it, it's it's a very different process than than what 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 we're doing, what I in, in the TMS competition, and what mm-hmm. most people think of when they think of Damascus steel. So Damascus steel, what, what I should call pattern welded steel, is where you take dissimilar metals, they're forge welded together, which is a solid state diffusion bonding, occurs at elevated, it can occur at room temperature. You know, if you have a very clean atmos- atmosphere mm-hmm. and very close mating surface, but 
you know that it only occurs in very few places um uh, but when you take those these metals and heat them up to high temperature, they can they can bond, and uh, without melting, and that that preserves their their uh, individual uh, chemical composition. So that when you come back and etch it with an acid, generally we use ferric chloride because it the, that that ferrous ion that ferric ion is all is actually relatively corrosive, mm-hmm. and uh, it it produces a very that black oxide finish. On, on the metals that oxidize, and then on the metals with high nickel content, it doesn't oxidize at all, so you get that contrast. Gotcha. But you can also make Damascus steel using less dissimilar metals. You could use a high carbon and a low carbon steel, and you won't get as much much definition, but it'll still be there. Mm-hmm. You just have to have to kind of angle it and catch it with the light. Gotcha. And so can you sort of walk us through from beginning two ends of sort of how you made this sword in terms of all the different processing techniques that you used? Yes, so when when you start making Damascus, you generally start with what's called a billet. And that that's just a, a sandwich really. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, you cut all your all your stock, all your all your materials up into equal sizes and then you stack them up in alternating layers and you there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You can you can Obviously, you change the thickness, you can change the count, and drastically changes the final product. But like I said before, we used 01, 15, and 20, and Molinol 200 nickel for this sword. And we started off with, I believe, 36 layers, and that was forge welded. We use a hydraulic press um, to forge weld it together, and then that, that piece was drawn out into a big bar, cut up. Those pieces were then ground and made sure they're perfectly smooth, cleaned with acetone. That's mm-hmm. really important to make sure there's no no sort of contaminating or sort of contaminating agents or whatever on, on the mating surface. And then they were welded again to produce, I think it was 168 layers or I can't remember exact exact final layer count. But um, and then that piece was taken, drawn out into a round bar and twisted just for the pattern, just to put a twist pattern in it. Mm-hmm. And then you take that twisted bar and then forged out into the, forged out into the blade. And uh, then for the rest of the sword, for the, for the, the cross guard and the, the pommel, uh, which is on the end of the sword, it's what kind of holds the handle on, uh, those are forged out of mild steel, out of, completely out of one piece, which was really fun for me. It was probably my favorite part of actually making the sword, uh, getting to work under the power hammer using a lot of kind of mm-hmm. f- fancy tools and just make cool shapes, you know, all out of one piece. You know, I, you've seen the picture of the sword, right? Yeah. And you see, it's got all the all the all the, it's got mm-hmm. four pieces coming off of that handguard. Well, it's yeah. all one piece. Wow. You know, it's, there's no welding there, nothing. It's just forged that way, uh, which was really fun for me. I really enjoyed that more so than the blade. Mm-hmm. Um, then those pieces were actually I case hardened them and then heat treated them just for fun. You know, that adds just a little little something extra. Um, the handle we used was a, a purple heartwood, which is a really fun wood to work with. It's it's bright bright purple. It's really hard, um, and it just stands up to time well. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, so that was pretty much how he made the blade. We he actually he treated it here at school. Um, it was actually quenched at my shop in Ogden, and then we brought it down here very quickly. It was all wrapped up in in uh, it was actually a alumina wool to keep it warm, and then brought it and immediately put it in in the oven at I think it was 475 degrees Fahrenheit for two cycles of of one hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Yeah. And what was the purpose of doing that? The heat treating, well, the heat treating is to, to harden it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as forged, you're generally looking between 20 and maybe 40 Rockwell, depending on what you've done to it, how fast you've cooled it after final forging. So after final forging, you generally take it when you needle it. Um, well, it's generally ground. You generally get the profile ground in to, to, to make sure everything's right. Um, and then it's also harder to grind afterwards when it's significantly harder. So it's easier to get all as much of the grinding done before, mm-hmm. uh, if possible. And then you take it and anneal it to make sure there's no residual stress, all the microstructures is even. And then it is quenched to harden it. And then you temper it back uh, for two cycles because we're using a very high carbon steel. So it has to undergo two tempering cycles. The first tempering cycle won't uh, convert all of re- the retained austenite to martensite. What happens when you have more than about 0.7% carbon in a steel, when it's quenched, uh, not all of that, the the martensite or the, the, or the, the steel will transform to martensite. Some of it will stay in the austenitic phase mm-hmm. uh, at, room, at room temperature. So if you do that second tempering cycle, that will actually convert, the first one will convert it all to, to to martensite, and then the second one will temp- temper that, that the rest of the martensite. A lot of people will do a cryogenic treatment after heat treating, where they take it and submerge it in uh, liquid nitrogen if you have the money. But uh, dry ice and, and ethanol works generally pretty well, or acetone, uh, generally for about one hour. And and that just really super cold t- uh, environment helps helps convert that retained austenite. Gotcha. So that's the whole. That's why. Super cool. Um, were there any were there any difficulties that came up during the process? Were is there any sort of cracking or issues during the processing that you had to address or handle? You know, nothing on this one out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Nothing I hadn't dealt with before. I was really, really, really lucky. Um, the final piece was a bit bit light, and that was generally due to the heat treating. We had some had a bit of trouble heat treating it. We, I was it able to acquire a six burner um, gas forge, which is about three feet long, but the blade itself was 48 inches or, or 46 okay. inches long. So heating it all up evenly, even though even with a three foot forge was, was still a little bit hard. And since it's so narrow, ended up having, I think we ended up quenching it three times before we got it right. And all that time just sitting there, ended up cooking a lot of it off. So yeah. it chewed it up, and it ended up being a bit lighter. I was shooting for about 2 to 2.1 pounds, and I think we were about 1.8, and a little bit shorter. That was just because we lost a lot of material in the heat treating and just got all scaled and then had to, got, had to, had to, had to be ground back. Mm-hmm. So that was probably the biggest thing. Um, you know, the Dema- Dema- working with Damascus is fun. Uh, I say that sarcastically because you, you're working with a material that's got thousands of welds in it yeah and if you messed up messed up something before it's going to come back to haunt you especially when you when you start you know hammering on it and, and squishing it in ways it doesn't it doesn't want to doesn't want to move mm-hmm. um it'll tend to crack and delaminate and do all sorts of funny things and we didn't have too much problem with that uh i had, had a little bit of trouble when i twisted it um sometimes when you twist something really hard and then you go back and try to forge it flat it'll want to it'll want to break apart at the edges but it's pretty easy to deal with as long as you get in there and you grind those cracks out mm-hmm. and, and make sure they, they can't propagate and make sure they're gone, you're generally pretty good. So that was the only, only main, major issue that we had with that. 
the guard I probably did four or five uh, versions of it before before I got it right. That's normal, you know, if you're just it's first time doing something. But other than that, honestly, it wasn't. It ended up being easier than I expected. Yeah, it was just a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's the thing with with when you get into swords or knife making in general. It's a lot of work. It's a, it's in a surprising amount of work. I recorded my hours on making the sword, and I I had two hundred and thirty hours wow. making the sword, um, and which doesn't surprise me at all. Just how much time goes into it. Um, there's just a lot of little little fine steps that you got to do them right, and if you don't do them right the first time, you got You're gonna you're gonna be coming back to them, or you're gonna be dealing with them later. So, you know, it just takes a while. And it was the first time I built anything that big. But other than that, I, I it went really well. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, as as far as you know, the things that could have gone wrong that would have been really bad, they didn't. You know, we didn't. Besides losing material during the heat treat. You know, I mean, it could have cracked. It could have fallen apart. It could have got dropped. Um, it, I mean, it got heat treated. You know, yeah. we even we took it and did uh, micro indentation testing on it, and we were pretty consistent, fifty to fifty-five Rockwell, which is what we were shooting for. Um, you know, so all in all, it, it ended up turning out really well. I thought so, mm-hmm. but you know, complications are what they are. You just have to learn how to deal with them on the fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. It's cool to hear that you had such success with something that you hadn't really done before. I'm sure that kind of inspires you to want to tackle other more difficult projects as well. Very, very much so. Going into it, I I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know mm-hmm. if it was going to work. I was just, I just said, all right, let's 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 buy the material and let's get started. You know, and I had never planned on planned doing something that big before. You know, the most I had done pretty fancy kitchen knives, but not nothing that's. 48 inches long and, and, and just the scale. The scale is what makes it hard. Um, Did you do any sort of literature review prior to this to try to map out your approach or figure out what considerations you were going to have to take for this? I really, I wanted it to be as close to his, historical examples as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was important for me. Uh, with, you know, as, as an art piece that, that it is not important, but it is it is cool to try to make something that, that that replicates uh, the the real the real the real swords and the real weapons that were used uh, because all the dimensions that they had were there for a reason. Uh, so I, I really tried to shoot for uh, kind of correct proportions. Uh, you know, we, we were kind of constricted on on the length. They had a forty eight inch or a hundred twenty centimeter mm-hmm. uh, cap yeah. on length, and that's actually a bit short for most. Sixteenth uh, and seventeenth century rapiers—they tend to be a bit longer. They'll get up into the fifty to fifty-two inch range uh, total length. So we ended up doing a little bit shorter, um, and then you kind of have to compensate with the balance, right. and you know, getting all the all the things right where you, it's the blade is tapered both width-wise and thickness-wise, and because of the difficulties in heat treating, I ended up having to grind it thinner than I would have liked. So if you pick it up, it, it does. It's it's not as heavy where it should be. It's a bit handle heavy. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's about a quarter of a pound light compared to to most histor- historical pieces uh, for its size. Um, they could they could get heavier. They could be up two and a half pounds, um, but generally they're right around two pounds, two point two pounds. Uh, and then the balance the balance point is really really important on on something like a rapier and. We weren't. We were a bit off on that. They're generally 
you know, six to eight inches from, from the hilt. I think we were only about uh, five inches or six inches from the hilt, which isn't isn't too bad. Yeah. But uh, it w- th- there is a reason they, they had those balance points where they are. But, yeah, you know, the historical stuff, it, it's hard because, you know, like, for example, like the wood, that wasn't historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um which was fine by me. I, we, we, we pointed that out in the paper and said, look, it just did it because we had it and it looked pretty. Obviously, the Damascus steel blade, for the time period, not very um, accurate. By about that time period in Europe in the 15th, 16th century, um, steel making technology had advanced to a point where they actually didn't have to do a lot of pattern welding. Yeah. Uh, earlier, earlier they did, uh, but th- by then the steel quality had, had gotten high enough where they could just use a single steel blade. Or mono steel blade. Hearing all these considerations that you took into it, I think it might be kind of intimidating for someone who's maybe interested in blacksmithing or but just really isn't familiar and doesn't know where to start. What would you recommend for someone who's listening to the show who's potentially interested in getting into blacksmithing but doesn't have any idea of where to start? You know, a great place to start is the internet. We live in a, a day and age where information is right at your fingertips and you can you can learn you know, piles, books worth in minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, there are lots of great resources out, out there today for people who want to get into blacksmithing online. There's really good books. I'd really just recommend um, setting a budget. That's a big thing. I've blown more money than I want to think of at, at, at this, what's now a hobby mm-hmm. and is kind of turning into a profession. But, uh, um, you know, you can you can get so deep in it, it it's it's endless. Mm-hmm. So setting a good budget and, and and realizing where your constraints are and how far you want to take it is 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 a is probably the best first step. Uh, but once once you get that, it's just kind of working inside inside that budget and inside your boundaries. What kind of forge do you want? Do you want to go with coal? Do you want to go with gas? You know, there are, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, you know, gas-fired forges are generally cheaper to run. They're more portable. They're easier. That's the biggest thing. They're just you just turn it on and go. With coal, it's a lot more hassle, mm-hmm. but it does have a lot of advantages. It gets a lot hotter. Um, you have you have the ability to get a lot more localized heat, whereas with a, uh, with a gas forge, you have you're heating a volume, and, and everything in that volume gets hot. Yeah, uh, and you you can't really control it. You can take something out and cool it off in different places to isolate the heat, but not like you can in a coal forge. And also it's because you're heating an enclosed space in a, in, a, in, a, in a gas forge, if you have some funky piece, say you're making a railing or mm-hmm. a gate that's got some big scrolls, well, you better get it right on the first time or you're not getting it back in the forge, you know. Whereas with the coal forge, since it's just, you know, pieces of rock and it's just pieces of coal in a pot, you can get all sorts of things in there different ways. Yeah. So you have to kind of uh, take into account what you're going to be doing. If you're going to be making knives, uh, want to be making Damascus steel, I'd say go with gas. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do a lot more architectural work and you have a, a good supply of coal, that's a big thing. Coal is surprisingly expensive for, the, for metallurgical grade coal or, or coke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sourcing is hard. Um, you know, if, if I want to go out and buy it today, there there are folks around here in Utah selling it, but it's 
you're looking sometimes a, a dollar a pound. Wow. And be, anywhere between the cheapest I've seen is probably 40, 50 cents a pound. And you can go through a 50 pound bag in a day, no problem. Mm-hmm. So it gets expensive fast. And what most people I've seen who get into this is that they they have enough money for that kind of initial upfront, you know, buy some tools, but they don't realize how much all the that additional additional consumables cost. Right. Grinders, grinding belts, abrasives. You're probably gonna have to have a welder. You're gonna be buying fuel. You're gonna be buying all sorts of different things that are just expenses. Um, you know, precision preci- precision machining machines, uh, grinders, that kind of thing. So you have to figure out where you want to go. Right. All right. Well, thank you for coming down and sharing your story with us and providing your perspective of you know trying to balance both the you know the educational theoretical side with the practical side mm-hmm. as well. I think you provided some really good insights into it and some good advice and little historical things for people who are looking to dive even deeper. Uh, thanks again for coming on and good luck and we hope to hear more about your sword making exploits in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, we're going to do a quick Q&A segment. And the question that I have that has been burning for me for a while as I've been following you on Instagram is, what on earth is this only read Dickens in December all about? Well, I think a lot of people just, they aren't reading as much. You know, people are always on their phones and, you know, where they're just consuming very vapid content. You know, it's just like short-term dopamine releases. And so overall, I think we could all do with a good book. Now, only read Dickens December is a movement that was started by a Sir William Guppy on Twitter. And, you know, Dickens is kind of within the mainstream population forgotten. You know, we get to Christmas time. People watch the Muppets Christmas uh-huh. Carol. They're like, oh, yeah, Dickens wrote that. But not enough focus is put to such a very good author. Now, unfortunately, I did not finish my Dickens book over December. What, so what were you reading? I'm reading Bleak House at the moment. My wife watched the PBS version or the BBC, whatever it was, and mm-hmm. she loved it. It's really good. He does a really good job painting the setting and painting the characters as being very unique and interesting. You know, a lot of, I don't know, and whenever I, I can't really watch TV anymore because all the characters on there are just so, like, one-dimensional and very boring. They're not very interesting. Yeah. It's just the same archetypes I've seen over and over again. But I think he does a really good job of painting really interesting characters and putting them in good settings. And so Only Read Dickens December is about expanding your literary horizons and reading some Dickens. Now, you do not have to be in December to read Dickens. You can continue to read it outside <laughs> of it, and so I'd recommend it. Okay. Now, a question I have for you. It's it's the new year. It's a new decade, actually, and so do you have any New Year's resolutions? That's a great question. Um, a couple years ago, I did a, a New Year's resolution, and I actually stuck to it all year. I wanted to do 100 push-ups a day every day for a whole year, and in 2018, I did, and it was so miserable that then I bounced back into 2019. I don't think I did a single push-up all year. I was so burnt out by having done it. Um, so this year, I think I want to set a goal to do something that's more realistically achievable long-term, right? Because I can force myself to do something when there's a sunset on it. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do this year is achieve something that's just more realistic. So a big part of that is this podcast. I, I want to keep releasing episodes every month. I feel like that's a timeline that we can achieve. And I just want to dive more into them and learn more about them while I'm doing it. Um, something else I do, if you guys don't follow, I've got a YouTube channel and I produce a lot of content there as well. So I plan on making... Uh, a bunch of new content there. For example, for each one of my homeworks for my intro to material science class, I want to make two new uh, solved YouTube tutorial problems on how to solve some of these things. 
anyways, that's something that I'm working on is just growing the amount of content that I generate and doing it at a way that I feel is sustainable. That's pretty good. And personally, I don't really believe in New Year's resolutions. Uh, I don't really buy into the like New Year, New You, New Year, Same You, <laughs> <laughs> New Year, New Decade, Same Andrew, pretty much. But um, last semester, I started learning Polish you know, independently, and so this semester, I picked up a couple textbooks. I picked up a book in Polish, and so I think I want to throughout this year actually make it through that book. Um, cool. And so I think in the beginning, it'll just be lots of like Google Translate you every should, every other word. I but imagine we teach Polish here at the U. You should take it. We don't offer it. Very few universities do, and it, it you know, it, it makes sense. You B- know, how many people BYU are really does. trying to learn? <laughs> I bet they'd be pretty good, but um, I'm hoping I can get through that book. I think in the beginning, one thing I want to do is like highlight all the words that I know and the ones that are, and then the ones that I don't know, and then by the end of it or halfway through, do the same thing, and so I can kind of track my progression and see how much my vocabulary is expanding. That's cool. But that's what I'd like to work on. Either way, I think it's a good episode, and I think we have a really, you know, lots of good content to come. We've planned out a bunch of episodes and have a lot of interesting new stories about material science to tell you about, and it's only going to get better. What's our next one on? So, imagine, you know, we're now living in the future. It's, it's the year 2020. So we should expect to see cool futuristic technology all around us. Well, picture this. You're driving in your car. You hit a nail until your tire pops. You get out of your car. You see the nail. You grab a pair of channel locks. You yank that thing out of your tire. Now imagine this. You wait a couple hours, you fill your tire up, and you're driving again with no problem. Is that science fiction or is that really possible? Find out next month with us. As always, if you have any questions or feedback, please send us emails at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and now they're on YouTube. So subscribe there as well. You can find them under Taylor Sparks' channel um, or whatever other service you used for your podcasts. If you'd like the show and want to help us reach more people, consider leaving a review. It helps us improve and exposes new people to the show. Finally, check out our Instagram page, at materialism.podcast. We are working on putting out even more interesting material science content. I'm sure we're going to upload a number of graphics to sort of explain all the different types of dislocations and what we've been talking about this episode to further help you understand the material and learn even more. Yeah, big props to our new team member, Jared Duffy, who's really helping us grow that effort to make it even more exciting as well. Mm -hmm. Hopefully he'll be here with us for the next episode. So say a silent hello to him. And finally, we'd like to give a shout out to Alphabot for allowing us to use his music within the podcast. You can check him out on Spotify. And as always, a special thanks to Colabite, who created the intro and outro for the podcast. He makes a ton of really cool synthwave music, which you can check out at colabite.bandcamp.com. Catch you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. 